Here they come. Right now, they're gathering from hospitals all across America for Talk 10 Tuesday. They know there's important news and information just ahead. Don't miss out. Come in, sit down, and log on. It's Talk 10 Tuesday. Here now is the publisher of ICD-10 Monitor, Chuck Buck. Thank you, like Anthony. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the 339th edition of Talk 10 Tuesday, brought to you today by ICD University, inviting you to attend an upcoming webcast on the new ICD-10 stress codes. And joining me this morning is my co-host, Dr. Megan Cartazio. Dr. Cartazio is the Medical Director of Clinical Improvement and Health Information Management at the famed University of Pittsburgh Medical Center. Dr. Cartazio is substituting for Dr. Reamer, to whom we wish... A happy New Year. Good morning, Dr. Catazzo. Good morning, Chuck, and hello, everyone. This morning, we're reporting on two major coding stories. At this hour, CMS is conducting its ICD-10 Coordination and Maintenance Committee meeting. That's in Baltimore. Lori Johnson is standing by to report on the proceedings now underway at the CMS headquarters there in Baltimore. That's right. And later in the broadcast, we'll also hear from Deb Greider, who reports on the recently released CPT code set. And speaking of codes, Gloria Ann Bryant is here to report on why facilities need to strengthen their coding and compliance operations. And this comes in the wake of the lawsuit recently filed against Providence St. Joseph Health for allegations of upcoding. And standing by with our mental health report is Dr. Catherine Harrison-Ristalli. Dr. Harrison-Ristalli will be reporting on the social determinants of health, especially adverse childhood events and their impact on children's physical and mental health. Boy, that's a tough subject indeed. We have much news to report this morning during this broadcast. We'll begin today with Dr. Larry Field. He's at the Talk 10 Tuesday News Desk. The Talk 10 Tuesday News Desk is sponsored by ICD University, inviting you to visit the new ICD-10 Monitor webcast subscription portal. Use the link in the handout tab in today's program or visit the ICD University web store. Here now is Dr. Larry Field. Good morning, Chuck, and good morning, everybody. Uh, this morning I was asked to uh, discuss, discuss a document that was published in August in the Journal of the American College of Cardiology. and the, It's a 29-page document, and it was an expert consensus document called The Fourth Universal Definition of Myocardial Infarction uh, for 2018. And in here, obviously, we have talked about uh, the definitions of type 1 through 5 myocardial infarction, and I don't wish to cover that today. But there were some interesting things that were takeaways out of this article besides the definitions um, that we've all gone through before. And it had to do with defining what the 99th percentile of the cardiac troponins were, and that one real paragraph in here struck home for me, and that is to be aware that for all cardiac troponin assays, including the highly sensitive assays, there is still no expert opinion or consensus about specific criteria for how the 99th percentile should be defined. So that we're utilizing this to, to define uh, by troponin values up above a certain level, but there's no actual consensus on what the 99th percentile is. And it goes on to say that it's markedly important because we're utilizing these that clinicians should rely instead not on the absolute value of the number, but on change in the values during serial measurement of cardiac troponin for the diagnosis of acute myocardial injury, including myocardial infarction. So it's not so much the number in and of itself, but the change 
in the troponin values that become more valuable. And that, I guess, would be similar to how we look at PSAs when we were doing those. It wasn't necessarily an elevated number, but the change over time that led us to uh, a conclusion. And then back on page uh, number 20, the operational criteria for myocardial injury and infarction is the title of this section. And it reinforces to establish the diagnosis of an acute MI, a rise and or fall in cardiac troponin values with one value above the 99th percentile, but it needs to be coupled with a high clinical and or EKG likelihood of myocardial ischemia. So not to just make the diagnosis of acute MI based on a troponin value, but to still use your clinical judgment, obviously, and the EKGs to help hone that down um, to be more certain that the person had a myocardial infarction. Additionally, other little caveats uh, within this go on to uh, the sort of um, regulatory aspect of this in regards to the individual and public implications of myocardial definitions and how when we make overcalls on MIs, how that could adversely affect uh, patients um, in their life. If someone tries to get a disability insurance and was misdiagnosed as myocardial infarction when they did not have one, um, that becomes an issue. So in the end, this is a very good document to read. Um, it's a good document to look for the caveats. And in the end, since all of you know I'm a Yogi Berra fan, you've got to be very careful if you don't know where you are going because you might not get there. Back to you, Chuck. Thank you very much, Dr. Field. That was Dr. Larry Field. Dr. Field is a treasure at the American College of Physician Advisors. It's Tuesday. It's September the 11th, 2018. It's the last day of Rosh Hashanah, and you're listening to the 339th edition of Tucked In Tuesdays. Stand by. Talk 10 Tuesday is brought to you today by ICD University, inviting you to attend a webcast on the new ICD-10Z codes. You've read about them and heard about them. The social determinants of health are the most significant healthcare trends in decades. So now learn about them in a remarkable webcast on Thursday, September 20th. Gain new knowledge on the ICD-10Z stress codes. Learn about their documentation. Get organizational implementation strategies and learn how to assess, engage, and maximize coding and reimbursement for this multifaceted client population. Plan to attend and learn how to, quote, remove stress from the ICD-10Z stress codes. To register, click on the handout tab in today's Talk 10 Tuesday broadcast. Thank you, Clark Anthony. CMS is conducting its ICD-10 Coordination and Maintenance Committee meeting at this very hour in its headquarters in Baltimore. Senior Healthcare Consultant and ICD-10 Contributor Lori Johnson is monitoring the meeting as she files this report. Good morning, Lori. Good morning, Chuck, and good morning, Megan. Today is the day that the Coordination Maintenance Committee begins their meeting. Under the handout tab, there is a document that provides you with the URL to watch the meeting live. For those who can't watch, but may be able to listen, there are also toll-free numbers to call so that you can listen to the meeting live. It's important to remember that you'll be able to comment when you call in. 
Today, CMS will lead the discussion on proposals for procedure codes. The procedures um, included in the preliminary agenda include lymphatic mapping in GYN cancers, intramedullary limb lesioning system, cell suspension autografting, and subcutaneous implantable cardioverter defibrillator insertions, and administration of several substances. Um, as of right now, they have covered a number of topics on the procedure side, including the lymphatic mapping in GYN cancers. Right now, they're talking about the intramedullary limb lengthening system. They also discuss the cell suspension autografting. Um, and also, um, one of the topics that they've already covered today is, is interesting. It's one of the drug administration proposals. Um, of the substance Vabamir. Um, Vabamir is an antibiotic that's used to treat complicated UTIs with multiple drug-resistant bacteria, specifically CRE. This drug already has been approved for fiscal year 19 IPPS new technology add-on payment, but it does not have an ICD-10 PCS code. The hospitals will have to include the national drug code or the NDC number on the 837I or the institution claim for the additional payment. The Center for Disease Control will lead the discussion on ICD-10-CM proposals. The CDC already published the meeting materials and a reminder that it may be possible to begin the review of the diagnosis proposals today after the procedures and at the rate that they're reviewing the procedures I suspect that they will get to the diagnoses today. The deadline for comments on codes will be effective April 1st, 2019 is October 12th, 2018. Let me say that again. We are able, there are some codes that could be activated or effective for April 1st. And also if you have a comment on a code that you want to be active for April 1st, you need to comment by October 12th, 2018. The deadline for comments on the code proposals effective for October 1st, 2019 is November 13th, 2018. The deadline for new code proposals um, is December 7th, 2018 for discussion during the March 5th and 6th um, Coordination and Maintenance Committee meeting. Um, one more reminder, free continuing education credits from AAPC and AHIMA are available to those who listen today and tomorrow. Back to you, Megan. Lori, thank you so much for that timely report. That was Senior Healthcare Consultant Lori Johnson. Lori is with the Revenue Cycle Solutions, LLC. Chuck? Thanks, Megan. And Lori, thank you very much. And if there's any additional information, we're going to circle back and talk to you later in the broadcast. You know, one of the major healthcare news stories is a lawsuit that was filed against Providence Son Joseph Health. It's a lawsuit that's seeking over $188 million related to alleged upcoding of Medicare claims. Now, in the wake of this lawsuit, Gloria and Brian has important information on how you can strengthen your coding and compliance operations. Here now is Gloria and Brian. Good morning. Thank you. And welcome, everyone. I wanted to share with you all the need to make our coding and HIM. CDI compliance strong and stronger. Stronger is an emphasis here. In the news recently, there were two events that we should take notice of and look at carefully. Yes, 
there was recent allegation of upcoding at Providence Health Systems headquartered in Renton, Washington, but also in the news was the Department of Justice settlement with Prime Health based in Ontario, California, which included upcoding as well. Providence operates 34 hospitals across five states. The specific claim against Providence is seeking $188.1 million for alleged Medicare upcoding. This allegation mentions diagnosis upcoding, encephalopathy, respiratory failure, and malnutrition specifically. We'll need to watch the progress and outcome of this suit over time. The second False Claims Act is regarding prime healthcare services headquartered in Ontario, California, who recently settled with the Department of Justice for $65 million. The settlement states that Prime was involved in submitting false claims to Medicare for admitting patients who required only less costly outpatient care and was billing for the more expensive patient diagnoses than the patient had or upcoding. Prime operates 45 acute care hospitals in 14 states. So what does this mean? This causes us really to reflect certainly that we don't want to be complacent. And I have this phrase I often use that being compliant is not being complacent. So it's really important for us not to be complacent about what we hear and see every day. Even if you have a coding compliance program in place now, you need to rethink, relook at your program, considering the recent legal actions that I mentioned above. Even with education and training that we're probably providing, we need to conduct an assessment if that's really being successful, if, the, if there's results positive for that, and determine if the attendees in the class or training are really learning, retaining, and applying the expected knowledge of that education and training. Even if we have auditing and monitoring in place, we need to conduct an assessment of those processes and results. And we need to make sure we have audit targets that are not being manipulated. We need audit results and or planned recommendations that really come through in corrective action and get accomplished. We need to have written policies and procedures. I know those are daunting at times, but we need to look at them, review them, make sure they're accurate to what we're doing today in our practices. And do we follow coding guidelines and ethical standards? I ask that question to the audience and for them to take back to their organization. Are we following coding guidelines and those ethical standards? Yeah, we can say easily, sure, sure. But let's take out those ethical standards and walk through them one by one, each standard, and really think about and reflect of our organization. Is it strong enough or does it need to be stronger? And we need to obviously have those written policies and procedures, as I mentioned, beyond just having it as a piece of paper. We need to do that. But we need to interview staff, conduct a survey, a compliance and ethical survey in our coding and even CDI to really check the culture of our department, our practice, our organization, and maybe even our company. Watch the questions that you get. Watch if you're setting metrics that are primarily financially driven and centered. We don't want to allow our coding and CDI efforts to be only dedicated to one payer. We want to take all payers, all patients in that umbrella of compliance and ethics. I have some short tips for you in my 
ICD-10 monitor article, so take a look at that. But more than ever, we should be developing and implementing coding and compliance, CDI compliance, that is effective, not just a piece of paper, not just a verbal, oh, sure, it's okay. We really need to be effective. And the Healthcare Compliance Association, in partnership with the OIG, has a great tool out there on compliance effectiveness, and it's free, and you can download it. You can easily look up HCCA OIG Compliance Effectiveness and obtain this resource guide. So let's be strong, let's be stronger for our coding CDI compliance. That's my message for you today. Thank you. Back to you, Megan. Thanks, Gloria, and that was really informative. That was the past president of the California Health Information Association, Gloria Ann Bryant. Chuck? Thanks, Megan. And Gloria Ann, thank you very much. And you can read Gloria Ann's reporting on this very important topic in today's ICD-10 Monitoring News. And we're proud that Gloria Ann is a member of the ICD-10 Monitor Editorial Board and has more than 40 years of HIM experience. Thanks again, Gloria Ann. Social determinants of health. It's a trending topic, and most often we think of adults, unemployed, homeless, and disenfranchised. Now, to expand our view of the social determinants of health is Dr. Catherine Harrison-Ristalli. Dr. Harrison-Ristalli returns to talk to Tuesday to report on the impact of social determinants of health on children. So, good morning, Dr. Harrison-Ristalli. We're talking about kids. We're talking about kids, but, you know, kids grow up to be grown-ups. So, we're really talking about all of us. I'm calling you from Baltimore. Baltimore is a remarkable city. It's vibrant. It's um, creative. We have great sports teams. We're also known in the news as one of the heroin capitals of the United States, a place where there was wonderful universities, such as Johns Hopkins and University of Maryland. But we have some of the highest rates of poverty, income inequality, of violence um, in the country. And many of you may have remembered the riots of several years ago. My children go to public schools. Schools were closed for several days. There were curfews. Many of my kids' classmates saw buildings burned, places looted, people injured. And you wonder, what kind of effect does trauma have on kids? And how does it change what happens when they grow up? So I'll tell you a story about a remarkable study that was done by Kaiser Permanente in California in the 90s in partnership with the CDC, and it's called the Adverse Childhood Experience Study. Um, We have a few slides in your slide packet if you'd like to reference them. And basically what happened is in the 1980s, they were running an obesity clinic, and lots of patients did well and lost weight. But they noticed that half the people, even though they were losing weight, dropped out of going to clinic. And they said, why? You're getting what you want. And when they surveyed the dropped-out patients, they noticed that more than half of those who had dropped out had histories of childhood sexual abuse. So weight gain for them was a coping mechanism to deal with depression, with anxiety, and fear. So they wondered how many other folks have trauma and how does it affect their health. So they did a survey of more than 17,000 patients. They were 75% white, 75% college educated. They all had jobs and access to excellent health care, and they were in their mid-50s. So they represent a solid group of um, middle-class Americans. And they did this survey, and they found a remarkable thing. 
that for common things that happen badly, like in the picture of the tree, having depression in your mom, physical or emotional abuse, things like that, 67% of Americans had at least one bad thing happen to them when they were a kid. 40% had at least two, and 20% had three or more. 28% of folks reported physical abuse when they were a kid, 21% sexual abuse, 11% emotional abuse, 27% 27% of people had substance abuse in their family, a quarter had a divorce, 20% had mental illness in their family. It goes on and on. But why does it matter? Because the more bad things that happen to you when you're young, it changes your health as you grow up. So for folks that had four or more adverse childhood events, they have seven times the rate of alcoholism, two times the rate of cancer, four times the rate of emphysema. Um, And this is remarkable. Childhood adverse trauma is the biggest preventable cause of disability that we have in the United States. And these are the things that are causing the chronic illnesses, the heart disease, the cancer, the stroke, the diabetes, the depression, the suicidality that are the primary killers of our population. How does this happen? We think that when you're young, if your neural network is stressed and you have stress steroids running all the time, it fundamentally changes your process of aging and makes you more vulnerable to disease. What's particularly scary is that this can affect, um, be passed down through generations. So if a pregnant woman has stress, domestic violence, um, or maternal depression, she has so many hormones that are activated in her body, they lead to epigenetic changes in the DNA of her fetus. So when that baby is grown, it knows it was conceived in a time of tremendous stress and the way its um, genes function are different than kids who grew up in a healthier environment and they'll be at risk for depression, obesity, heart disease. So it's pretty amazing and pretty scary. Folks who have many um, adverse events lose years of life, up to 20 years, and this is super expensive as well. We spend money on caring for kids who can't behave in school and get suspension and put out. We have costs to the criminal justice system, costs to lost lives through um, uh, medical illness as well as mental illness. There are things we can do. We can improve parenting. We can improve early childhood education. We can address substance use and and psychiatric illness earlier. And we can find ways to help young folks manage their stress and anxiety better. This is through things like trauma-informed care, meditation, mindfulness, yoga, and schools. Instead of fighting with a kid who's fighting with you, helping them learn to kind of relax, take a breath, and cope. Some schools have been able to reduce their suspension rate by 85%. So our hope is that if we pay more attention to the impact of trauma, we can use our funds wisely and invest our money early in the game instead of the 50% of our healthcare costs in the last few months of life to drive better control of chronic conditions. Thank you very much. Back to you, Megan. 
That was an excellent report. Thank you so much for shedding light on the link between trauma and illness. That's a very important topic. That was Catherine Harrison-Rostelli with the Shepherd Pratt Health System. Chuck? Thank you, uh, Megan. And Dr. Harrison-Rostelli, thank you so very much. Dr. Harrison-Rostelli is the Medical Director of Health Services at the Shepherd Pratt Health System in Baltimore. It's recognized as one of the nation's top mental health systems. Thanks again. As we mentioned at the top of the broadcast, the American Medical Association recently released its 2019 CPT code set. With more on this developing story is AMA author and senior healthcare consultant, Deb Ryder. Good morning, Deb. Welcome back to Talk Ted Tuesday. So we understand there are like 335 code changes. Yes, there are, Chuck. It's not just brand new codes, but we also have many code revisions, guideline changes and additions, descriptions and instructional notes. So it's really important that when you get your code books or you get your electronic coding tools that you review those changes. Let me just kind of refresh some of the highlights of of what we're looking at with the new codes. We have some new evaluation and management section codes for um, the interprofessional telephone, internet, electronic health record console. We have new codes for nonverbal communication technology in ENM. One of the exciting things we have, we have fine needle aspiration codes. The CPT code 10021 is still in place. That's without imaging guidance. But we also have guidelines that, that uh, differentiate between a needle aspiration and a core needle biopsy now. And we have new codes that, that have been added for specific imaging guidance. One of the real exciting things that I think is that we have new codes for skin biopsies. We've been reporting them for years with 11100 for the first lesion and 11101 for each additional lesion. They've deleted those codes, and now we have new guidelines for coding biopsies. We have six new codes, and they're based on the method of removal, whether it be a shave, a saucerize, a punch, or an incisional. We, we code those to more specificity now. And then we have some new codes for allografts in the musculoskeletal system. We have a new code for CT or MRI of knee arthrography. We have some transcatheter insertion codes for the leadless pacemakers. And then we have a code for the replacement of the aortic valve and then an aortic hemiarch graft. There's two new codes for the PICC line insertions. And we've got the gastrostomy two placement codes. They've deleted the 43760 and replaced it with two codes. One is without imaging and endoscopic guidance. The other is a revision of the gastrostomy track. Um, We've got some endo uh, urologic procedures. We've got a new code for new access into the renal collection system. And then we have a transurethral destruction of the prostate tissue with vapor thermography. And that is uh, a new code as well. We've got a couple of codes. We actually have three or four codes that are new for MRI, elastography, and this procedure is used for differentiating malignant benign neoplasms, especially in the breast, identifying early traumatic changes in muscles and tendons, and aids in deciding the biopsy site more accurately, reducing negative biopsy rates, assessing liver fibrosis, and more. So this is fairly new technology to pay attention to. And then we have codes for the microbubble sonographic contrast. Uh, We have two new codes for that, and we have four new breast MRI procedure codes. And then we have two new codes in ophthalmology in the medicine section that were added to report global response to photoreceptors of the retina and um, in separate locations. So that's a new code as well as new guidelines for nervous system assessments. 
central nervous system assessments and tests. We have new codes to report psychological or neuropsychological report testing and scoring. And then we have new codes for, that were added for programming neurostimulators, and the codes are based on nerve-selected and simple versus complex, as well as eight new codes and guidelines for adaptive behavioral services. There are numerous path and lab codes and Category 3 codes that have been added this year, so I would uh, suggest that everybody get their code books and start reviewing and taking a look to make sure that they have the correct codes and the guidelines to report those codes going forward in 2019. Back to you, Megan. Thanks, Deb. That was nationally recognized coding authority, Deborah Greider. Deb is an AMA author and senior healthcare consultant at Karen Zupko & Associates. Chuck? Thanks, Megan, and thank you very much, Deb. That's going to be a wrap for our 339th edition of Talk Dead Tuesday. And Megan and I want to thank our panel today, Gloria Ann Bryant, Dr. Larry Field, Deb Greider, Lori Johnson, Dr. Catherine Harris Rostali, and, of course, Megan Curtazio. And remember, every day can be Tuesday when you listen to Talk Dead Tuesday on demand, anytime, anywhere, and it's free. You can listen to us on Stitcher, Apple, Spotify, and Google Play. And before saying goodbye, I want to thank Dr. Megan Kutazi for sitting in today. We want to wish all our Jewish friends a happy new year as Rosh Hashanah draws to a close this evening. Hope you'll be with us next Tuesday for another live edition of Talk Dead Tuesday. Until then, I'm Chuck Buck speaking on behalf of Dr. Megan Kurtazzo and everyone here at Talk Dead Tuesday. Thank you very much for sharing your time with us today. Talk 10 Tuesday is a production of ICD-10 Monitor.